Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, grab those and open them to the to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we'll read verses 12 through 17. Uh, as you turn there, if you're new here, I'm Byron Bradshaw, I'm the pastor here. I've been the pastor for four years here. Today we're reading John chapter 15. We'll go from verses 12 through 17. I'm using the New American Standard 1995 edition. And Jesus kind of introduces a new type of relationship, so to speak. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go forth and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that wherever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Amen. Good morning again. Thank you for being here. If you could uh, summarize the Bible, the truth, into a word, just one word, what would you say? That word is what we will talk about in John chapter 15, but that word is further explained in 1 Corinthians 13. That's what I'm going to open, and then we will begin If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, for love never fails. Today I titled my sermon, uh, Befriending God or Becoming Friends with God. Now, this is a rather strange title, but it, it really is, in a sense, the essence of John chapter 15. Because what I see today in our passage is kind of a, a different side of God, a different character trait of God. I see God's desire uh, for relationship and closeness. Pause. I want you to think about the nature of relationships, the nature of relationships that you have with other human beings. We have different types of relationships with people. You have strangers. My mom told me not to talk to strangers. Anyways, I don't know if that's quite what she said. (laughs) Anyways, uh, we have strangers, and then we have acquaintances, and then we we have friends, and then we have best friends. But you have more relationships than just that. You have siblings, you have children, you have a spouse. So you have all sorts of different types of relationships, but if you could uh, group them into two groups, what would you use? There are actually only two different groups of relationships that we have here on earth. 
I mean, think about this kind of weird question I'm going to ask of you. How do you know if someone is your spouse or your child, as opposed to how do you know somebody is your friend or your best friend or an acquaintance? If you think about it, siblings, children, spouses are a relationship of status, and strangers, acquaintances, and friendships are all relationships of choice. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your parents and your children. They either are or they aren't. And strangers, acquaintances, friends, and best friends are a matter of choice. And based on your own choices and how much time you spend with those people, they change in their different relationships to you. For example, the relationships of choice, those kinds of relationships change as you live. In high school, I had a friend named Sean who went from an acquaintance my sophomore year to a friend my junior year to my best friend my senior year, and then he was best man in my wedding, and then now today he is basically just a friend. I have my best friend from youth group days uh, is now an acquaintance, and a disciple of mine who I discipled in seminary is now my best friend. Relationships of status never change. The relationships of choice always changes based on the circumstances. Why do I make that distinction? Why do I kind of draw the line between relationships of status and relationships of choice in time? Because that's really what I see in John chapter 15, the, the tension that I see in John 15 verses 12 through 17, because Jesus introduces a relationship of choice to the disciples, a relationship that changes. And some of you are probably a bit confused because think about you, your relationship with God. You have two different types of relationship with the Lord. You have a relationship of status with God and then you have a relationship of choice with God. Is that true? Who are you? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, who are you? What is your relationship of status with him? That you are a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. That at the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you inherit something that can never change. That when you believe we are children, heirs, part of the family of God, part of the body of Christ. If you are a believer, you went from a stranger hostile toward God in Romans chapter 8 to now a child of God. And that status as his child will never change no matter what you do. I mean, think about I have three girls, and I said last week that I'm I'm a dodo, a dad of daughters only. That is true. Uh, But think about my relationship with Bren. No matter if she one day has nothing to do with me, what is she still? She is still my child. That no matter what she does, she will always be that to me, even though my relationship may change with her over time in a different level. We have a relationship of status with God, but then we also have a relationship of choice that we can, in a sense, be kind of acquaintances with God, we can be friends with God, or we can be best friends with God, as Peter, James, and John are. And being a friend of God is something that we must foster, is something that we must do, is something that we must prioritize if we want to be close to Him. So what do we do to be a friend of God? Two things. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we're kind of introducing a relationship of choice that we have with God. We've talked extensively in this church, especially after we were going through the book of Romans, our, our relationship of status with God, but then today we talk about the other. 
But as we go into John chapter 15, kind of where are we within the context of this book? I, th- I do this every week just to kind of remind us of where we are in the story. As I share often, we don't remember what we had for dinner last night, much less what happened a week ago. John chapter 13 to 16 is called the Upper Room Discourse. And then you have John chapter 17, which is kind of the, the epilogue of the Upper Room Discourse, which is a prayer that Jesus has, that he prays for himself and for his disciples and for us here today. In John chapter 13, we see the tension. In John 14, we see the solution. In John 15, we see the fruition. And if you think about just the upper room, it is just, just this one section of Scripture, it is actually wonderful literature. It is great literature. You have character development, great characters. You have irony. You have betrayal. You have a plot twist. You have foreshadowing. You have redemption. You have principles of truth. That In this section, this kind of all mixed together, you have just wonderful literature. What is the tension that is introduced in John chapter 13? If you remember the story, the disciples, on the way up to the upper room, they are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. The disciples are just self-consumed. And Jesus takes a time out. He sees that they are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus takes the position of the most humble of servants. He takes up a towel. He goes out to the patio and he picks up that water pitcher and he picks up a bowl and he cleans the disciples' feet, giving them an example to follow. The tension is that the disciples are self-consumed and that Jesus is father and people consumed. That the sovereign God of the universe takes the most humblest of positions And then if you remember, the the tension in John 13 grows all the more because then Judas kind of gets the memo to go and betray the Son of God. And then Judas becomes the son of perdition, which Jesus calls him in John chapter 17, verse 12, the son of perdition, meaning the son of destruction. That Judas walks out of the upper room, betrays the Son of God for a thousand dollars or 30 pieces of silver. And then in the midst of the tension, Jesus offers them the solution to their distress. In verses 1 through 6, he gives them the promises of eternal life, the promises of his return. And then you see in John chapter 14, 7 through 14, you see the relationship of Jesus to the Father. And then, oh, by the way, the disciples who feel alone, they will have received a helper that will come after him. And then what happens in John chapter 14, Jesus, I guess, decides that they need a change of scenery. Because at the end of John chapter 14, it says this, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me, get up, let us go from here. So at the end of John chapter 14, Jesus decides, okay, I'm I'm tired of eating the Passover meal, we're going to start walking towards the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and that's where I imagine he is, and then he spots a vine. And ever the master communicator, he communicates truths by seeing this grapevine on the way up to the Mount of Olives. And if you remember last week, that's what we discussed last week. He he introduces the tension between what is a true follower of Jesus Christ and what is a false follower of Jesus Christ. What is a true believer and what is a false believer? A false believer in Jesus Christ, what? Does not bear fruit. And a true believer in Jesus Christ bears fruit by abiding in Christ. If you remember the point last week, a true disciple bears the fruit of love by abiding in Christ through supplication, through the scripture, and through the spirit. Now, if I did not convince you last week that the fruit that a true believer is supposed to bear, so to speak, if I didn't convince you that that was true because the fruit of the spirit is love, singular, 
But then I want you to notice the context of our passage. So really John 15, 1 through 11 is the kind of the metaphor, the parable. And then right after that parable, he introduces verse 12. I'll read it and then I'm going to kind of take a step back and I'm going to kind of frame the passage in its entirety. So if you don't believe me that the fruit that we are to bear as true believers is love, then notice verse 12. This is my commandment. Notice that it's singular. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now I want you to notice real quick, this is what I like to do every Sunday morning because this is the process that I take when I study the scripture. Notice John chapter 15 verses 12 through 17. That is kind of one pericope or one section of the upper room. But then notice the similarities. You have verse 12, and then you have verse 17, which is almost identically repeated. So you have kind of the top bun, and then you have the bottom bun. They're the same type of thing, but they're slightly different. And then you kind of have all the stuff in the middle. Okay, that's a good cheeseburger, okay? So you have verse 12, the top bun, 17 is the bottom bun, and then you have 13 through 16 is everything in the middle. Now, whenever I study the scripture, what I do first is I just slowly read the passage. And as I read the passage, little uh, lightning bugs kind of go off in my mind. And then I step back and I just discover the structure, which we just saw. But notice with me, verse 12. Now that we have the general structure, it says this again. It says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have Love you. Just notice that first phrase with this is my commandment. Notice two things. It is my commandment. It's Jesus' commandment to the eleven, because Judas is already gone, so this is his commandment to the eleven. But then notice that word commandment, which I've already pointed out, is singular. It's not plural. And this is my commandment that you love one another. The one thing that Jesus wants them to do as a true disciple and true follower of Jesus Christ is he wants them to love one another. But I, I, I kind of looked at that commandment word, that, that the singular nature of that word, and I thought that was a little bit confusing because Jesus has given them other commandments in the upper room. So what I did is I just did a word study. The Greek word there for commandment is intele. And if you were to actually look up that one word throughout the upper room, you would actually see something quite interesting. John 13.34 is a verse that the word commandment is used. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Another verse that uses the word commandment, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and, if, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John chapter 15, verse 10 is another verse that uses the word commandment. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What's interesting about that? That every time Jesus uses the word commandment, it's all basically saying the same thing. That in order to be a true disciple, that the one command that the Christian life really boils down to is to love. It's to love God. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. And it is to love one another. Now, I know that... Um, 
this is nothing new. This is nothing revolutionary. That it's not like I haven't shared this like 18 billion times that we as Christians are to love God and love others. But just allow me to make it abundantly clear: the one mandate in Scripture above all else is that we are to love God and then to love others, and then out of that love, then we what? Then we serve. Then we teach. Then we make disciples. Out of our love for God and our love for others, then we serve. To further the point, and I'm, and I'm intentionally belaboring this because I really just want to just drive it into our minds today. And um, what they say is that repetition is theological glue, so that's what I'm going to do today. If you, but Jesus also says in another passage in Matthew chapter 22, he answers the question of what is the greatest commandment in all the law. Matthew chapter 22, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If I am ever known for anything, if I am ever personally known for teaching anything, I hope it is this one idea that the great commandment, what we are set out to do, how we are to live, how we are to treat one another is to first love God. And out of a love and obedience to him, we then love one another. And out of that idea of loving one another, allow me to share kind of two different principles that I would like to share with you as Christians or as believers in Jesus Christ. Principle number one is this. That we should never, never, ever, ever look at a fellow believer as someone to hate or despise. Let me say that again. A principle that we see out of John chapter 15, verse 12, is this, that we should never look at a fellow believer as someone to hate or despise. If you find yourself being bitter or angry towards another believer, you are not living according to the commandments of Scripture to love. Now, as I was um, preparing this sermon this week, this principle that I feel like the Lord placed into my mind uh, <laughs> hit me like a ton of bricks, like it was like a bowling ball to the face, okay? And now, i got to tell you that preachers are vastly imperfect, and if you think that I'm perfect, you uh, just don't go home with me, okay? So, man, okay, <laughs> Byron's imperfect. Yes, I am, and I'll be the first to tell you. Because over the years, as a pastor, and really as anybody, can we just be honest here? That we as believers, if you've been in church in any length of time, that we as believers can slowly become callous and bitter and want to pick a fight and have a bone to pick and are calloused and revengeful towards other believers. But being callous and being bitter and despising or seeing somebody in the church building and you kind of wanting to go like this towards them, that's not loving your brother. That's not loving one another. That's not what God has called us to do. But being calloused and being bitter towards other Christians, that's the flesh and that is the enemy driving a wedge into your relationship with God and to other people. If you have 
someone, and this is something that I'm convicting, is there, if there is somebody in your life that is in this room or even beyond, if they're believing in Jesus Christ and there is a wedge that you have put in your relationship with them, then resolve it. Resolve it. Love one another. Principle number one is that never look at a fellow believer as someone to despise. And then principle number two is this. That Christians, if the one command in all of Scripture is to love God and love others. Now, I know I've said that before. And if I get, you get tired of that, then just don't read the Bible, okay? It's all over the place. Um, if the one commandment in all of Scripture is to love God and love others, then what's the second principle that should happen? That Christians should be the most loving people on the planet. That Christians should be the most loving people on the planet. But what do people often find? <laughs> Let me just ask you, how many of you have ever been felt condemned or, or viciously judged by another Christian? Okay. I, I, you were all not, just not confessing at this particular moment. Um, Christians should be the most loving people on the planet, but what do we often find? We find that Christians are often more concerned with being right than they are to love. I'm, I, I'm just going to say, an attitude of being right without an attitude of love mimics or extends from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What does it say again? And I'm just going to repeat this really quick. It says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong. If I have the gift of prophecy... And I know all mysteries and all knowledge and by all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Friends, sometimes we are far more concerned for being right than we are for loving one another. Now, we should be concerned for truth. Don't get me wrong. We should speak the truth in love. But if you are more concerned for winning the argument and winning the day than you are for loving your neighbor as yourself or loving him as he loved us, then you're not living according to what we should. A Christian who is more concerned for being right than loving is not a, acting like a Christian, but acting like a Pharisee. A Christian that cannot apologize and forgive is not obedient. But let me just answer the question why is loving one another, why is that so important? I mean, it says it. So there are 59 one another's in the Bible. 13 of them are love one another. So if you get tired of me talking about this, sorry. Um, it's all over the map. The, the word agape, or a derivative of it, is used 258 times in the New Testament. It's all over. So why is it so important? You know, why does God remind us that he loves us and that we should love people. Why does he remind us over and over and over again? I think three reasons why love is important. Number one, first off, because God told us it was important. Amen? Um, it's like when I tell Brenda to clean her room, she's like, why? Because I said so, okay? It's just the way it is. Number one. Number two is the church, if you walk into this building and you feel loved, then what does this become? This becomes a safe place. It enhances the unity of the body. Friends, church should not be a place that we have to kind of put up a mask and a screen just so we don't feel judged, but it should be a place that we feel loved. 
So number one, the reason loving one another is so important is because God told us. Number two is because it preserves the unity of the body. But then number three, what is the world? The world is void of love. And now it says it understands love, but all the love that it really talks about is not this self-sacrificial love, but it's this romantic, self-seeking love. The world is in darkness, and when we truly love one another, what's going to happen? The world's going to say, that is weird. I don't see that anywhere else. It causes us to be light in the darkness. But then notice, how should we love one another? Verse 12 again. This is my commandment. One, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And how has Jesus loved us? Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his own life for his friends. How are we to love one another? We are to love one another as Christ loved us. And how did Christ love us? He loved us enough to be self-sacrificing, to be selfless. Greater love has no one, than, no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. This, in a sense, is foreshadowing his death. And if you know the disciples to this point, they're rather clueless as to what's really going to happen in the plan of God. But not only is his death the payment for my sin, so that I could be justified before God, but his death is also an example I should follow. Let me say that again. Jesus' death is the payment for my sin, and Jesus' death is an example I should follow. What is the principle here? What's the idea? So some of you say, okay, should I, should I die for my friends? Okay, well, one day it might come to that. If persecution from the world grows and grows and grows towards Christians, it might come to the point where we have to die for one another, quite literally. But I think the principle here is this, that we are to put ourselves before ourselves. That we, are to, excuse me, that we are to put others before ourselves, even at our own demise. Let me say that again. That we are to put others before ourselves, even at our own demise. But I want you to think about the irony here in John chapter 15. I want you to compare it to what he says in Matthew chapter 22. Because there, what does he say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how we love one another is how we would want to be treated. But then Jesus kind of takes that even a step further. He says that you should love one another as I have loved you, not as what you would want in the circumstance, but as Christ would love them in return. And how did Christ love us? Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having been justified by his blood, we now shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, so we should be saved by his life. The way we love one another is as he loved us, and he loved us by sacrificing himself, setting himself aside and loving them to the end. But then notice kind of the middle stuff. So you have kind of the top bun and then you have the bottom bun in verse 17, but then notice all the good stuff in the middle. This is kind of really where I want to introduce to you a new idea. So in the, in the midst of circulating an old idea, verse 12, we circulate a new one. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Now I want you to notice the two results if we love one another. Verse 14, it says that if you love or if you are obedient to God, then you become his friends. 
You are friends if you do what I command you. Now notice in your text in verse 14, that is a conditional statement. But he kind of puts the effect up front. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I got really TMI this week, and I wanted to figure out what class condition of Greek clause was that. This is a third class condition that Jesus uses in the original language. It is an ain plus a subjunctive. A third class condition is one that is uncertain of fulfillment, but still likely to be fulfilled. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, you are my friends if... You are obedient. So Jesus says it's likely that they will fully obey and likely they become fully my friend. But it is uncertain. Why? Because it is up to them to fulfill it. This is where I'm going to drop in a new idea. I'm going to parachute in an idea at this moment. I want to talk about that word friend. The Greek word for friend here is the Greek word philoi. Philoi. It, it means being a friend or a close associate. It is used in James chapter 2 to describe Abraham as a friend of God. It is used in John chapter 3 verse 29 to describe the best man listening to the bridegroom chamber. But it also introduces this idea. Philoi does not describe a relationship of status, but rather a relationship of choice. A relationship that must be fostered and that must grow over time. This is the new idea. That we have a relationship of status with God. That the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born again. That you're his child. That you're a co with Christ. That you have this host of different statuses that will never change. But then you have a relationship of choice and a, rela- and a relationship of relationship. That we are God's friends. And how can we be God's friend? He says it in verses 14 and 15. He says, number one, that you must obey. In order to be God's friend, you must obey. You are my friends if you do what I command. And then number two, in verse 15, we become God's friend by obedience and we become friends by hearing God. What does it say? For all things that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. A friend of God, listen, a friend of God hears the truth and obeys the truth. A friend of God hears the truth and obeys the truth. And think about Abraham himself. What was, what was, he, what was he known for? He heard the truth and he followed the truth. He was a man of faith. And I take great comfort from the fact that Abraham was called a friend of God in James, in the, James chapter 2. Why? Because Abraham made a lot of mistakes. But still, Abraham decided to follow, to hear from the Lord, and to be obedient to him. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, your status with God changes, and it changes permanently. And what do you think about a child, my child, Bryn? Okay, she is a handful, and she's wonderful, and I love her to death, but she drives me crazy sometimes. Can parents relate in the room? Amen. Can Bryn do anything possible to ever become not my child? No, she will always be my child. But could she at some times in her life be more like an acquaintance in my relationship with her? Yeah, sometimes she could even turn her back and run when she becomes an adult. She could do that. That is an idea that I see here. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a status with God that can never change. That you have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That you cannot lose something that you did not earn. Okay? You cannot lose your salvation. I know there's a lot of prominent theologians that believe you can. That's baloney. Okay? That, that's a theological term right there. Okay. 
But then you can change in your relationship with God. That sometimes in your life, you can feel close to God and you can feel far from God. Can anybody relate to that? I mean, I, I think about my own personal life. I think about when I was in college. College, I felt like a friend of God. I remember I had like quiet times every day. I was a UH student, and I would go by the duck pond, and it smelled horrible out there. But I would, I would walk with the Lord, and I would read my Bible, and I would memorize Scripture, and I would hear from the Lord. I would hear from His Word. And then I would be obedient to it. And I felt like there was this connection, that I am His friend, that I had this kind of philoi, love. And then... I started working full-time in corporate America, and if that doesn't drive you away from the Lord, that, it's certainly a struggle. <laughs> okay. In God, I stopped really hearing from God. I stopped really reading the Bible on a regular basis, and slowly my relationship with God went from this like best friendship, this closeness where I heard from the Lord and I was obedient to, to here where I, I kind of didn't know. I didn't really read the scripture all that often, so it was very difficult for me to obey the Lord. That's the idea I'm talking about here, guys, is that we have a relationship of status, but a relationship of choice. And let me just speak bluntly. If you feel far from the Lord, what does that reveal about, about your life? That the Lord is near. The Lord has given you his word. If you feel far from the Lord, what does it reveal? It reveals that you probably aren't hearing from him and being obedient to his call. But is it true that there are different relationships with God, that there are different levels of friendship with God? I want you to just think about the disciples themselves. You had the hundred, you had the twelve, and then you had the three, Peter, James, and John. So if you notice in your text, excuse me, my microphone is kind of going like this today. So if you notice in your text, result number one, if you love others, then you become God's friend. And then notice result number two, verse 16, if you're God's friend, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go, go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give to you. The result number one of knowing and hearing God is that you will be a friend of God and then you will bear fruit that will last. That's what he shares. But then notice the bottom bun, so to speak. Verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Why does Jesus repeat himself? Because literature in, in, this, in the text itself, it's clear what he wants already. That in verse 12, he wants us to love one another as he has loved us. So why would, on earth would he repeat himself? Two reasons. For clarity and for emphasis. Parents in the room, how many times have you done something like this? You go to your child and I say to her, Bryn, I need you to clean your room. Brenny, I need to, you to clean your room. What is that doing? It is showing them that you're serious, that you actually want her to be obedient. And here we see the same thing with Jesus. He gives them the command in verse 12, and then he repeats himself in verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. So what is the point of the passage? You could phrase it a different, couple different ways. The point of the passage, one could say, is loving one another as Christ did, selflessly proving to be God's friend and bearing lasting fruit. Or you could repeat it this way, how do we befriend God? By being obedient to him in love and by hearing from him in his word. Before I close this time, I'm just going to ask you two different questions here today. Question number one is, how is your status with God? How is your status with God? 
that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that your status with God will never change. You can't lose something you did not earn. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're a child of God, you're co-heirs with Christ, as it says in Romans chapter 8, that you are, you are adopted, that you're part of the body of Christ, you're part of the family of God, and these are all relationships and status that will never change. My question for you is, what is your status? In other words, have you ever believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I share the gospel by conviction every Sunday morning because I do not know if this will be your last time that you ever visit my church. And so every time somebody visits, I want them to hear the message of the gospel. And this week I was speaking somewhere else on the side, and I defined the gospel as this, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. The question is this, is have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever believed? Because at the moment that you believe, you have a change that takes place, that you are born again, that you inherit eternal life and abundant life. But not only that, your status with God changes from an alien to hostile towards God to a new creation, to a child, to be adopted as his son. If you have never been changed by the gospel, if you have never had eternal life or abundant earthly life, this sermon is weird to you then you're probably not a Christian. You've never surrendered your life to the Lord. How is your status? Are you his child? Have you ever believed in him? And then question number two is, how is your relationship with God? Twenty years ago, I was sitting here at Calvary Bible Church. I was up in the depot, and a new youth pastor came. And I've shared this story before. A new youth pastor came and he said something I never heard before. He said that you are meant, Byron, to have a relationship with God. I thought he was crazy. But as I look throughout the scripture, as I look at John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, I see that we are philoi, that we can become friends with God, that we are meant to have a relationship with the Lord, that since the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, that Adam knew the very sound of God, that he was created to know God, to hear God, to be obedient to God, to serve God's purpose, to fulfill God's will, that that is the calling upon our life. And the will of God is this, that we would love him, and then out of a love for him, that we would then love one another. If you do not, let me say say it in reverse, if you do not love other people, then you do not love God. Because if you love God, then you will love his people. My question for you is this, how is your relationship with God? Is your relationship close? Do you walk with him? Are you his philoi? Are you his disciple, his follower? Do you walk with him? I want you to, before I close, I want to draw an illustration from life. I want you to think about the relationship between status and the relationship of choice. I want you to think about your marriage. Your marriage is kind of both in and of itself. You still haven't believed me that you kind of have these two different types of relationship with God. And think about your own marriage. You have a relationship of status, right? You are either married or not married. But within your marriage itself, there are times where you feel close to your wife and far from your wife. You feel like you're banging your head against the wall with your wife, okay? Am I the only one? Okay, I'm going to air out my marital issues. Okay, but this is just the life. That sometimes you feel close to your wife, sometimes you feel far from your wife. I feel like it's the same kind of thing with God, that with our spouses, are we spending time with them? If you don't feel close to your spouse, then you must spend time with them. You must stop doing what is irritating to them. You must show affection and love. 
I think our relationship with God is similar. If you feel far from God, then the question is, are you spending time with him? Are you allowing sin in your life that irritates him? Are you actually loving him in return with all of your heart, mind, and soul? Are you a friend of God? Are you philoi? Are you a friend of God? And if you are not, then can you hear, do you listen to God and his word, and are you obedient to it to love your neighbor as yourself? That's what I see in the text. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. This passage was, in some ways, simple in its, in its essence, but also kind of complex in its uh, practical application to our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be marked as friends of God, that we would be marked as Abraham was, that we do not have to be perfect, we do not have to be sinless to be your friend, but we must be one that must be obedient, that loves you, and then loves your people. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be marked by our love for one another, that we would stand out on Drake Avenue as the light in the darkness. And Lord, I pray for those that do not have the status with you, that, do not, that, is not, that are not your children, that do not know what it means to have a relationship with you, that have never begun that relationship. Lord, I pray for those that are here that do not know you as Savior. I pray that they would trust in you and believe in you, realizing their sin and their mistakes that they have no way to pay for, but they would believe in your Son because you died for them in their stead. And Lord, I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for those that are here. I pray for all those that are sick. There are so many in our church right now that are sick with COVID and so many other things. I just pray for protection for them, that you would comfort them. And Lord, I pray for all those that are grieving as well. Uh, we've had a lot of people that have passed away recently. And Lord, I just pray for special blessing and comfort upon them. Lord, I pray that we as a church would show love and comfort to them. And I thank you for today. We lift this up to you. In Jesus' name, amen.